the judges are fearing that that they need to move on this now or else there could be some other things that interfere and get in the way of having a procedure not not necessarily that there won't be trials just you know it's possible that that there won't be Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, August 30th. Today, I'm joined by Eric Gardner to talk about Donald Trump on trial. A judge ruled this week that the federal case against Trump for attempting to overturn the 2020 election will officially go to trial in early March, just a few months from now. Trump's lawyers argued the trial should be delayed, but as Eric explains, time is running out for this case and the others against Trump to be tested by the justice system. And later, Ben talks to Bill Cohan about his reaction to the news that Amazon might partner with ESPN as it reimagines itself as a streaming service. We'll discuss all that and much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting The Gentleman. The new series from Guy Ritchie stars Emmy nominee Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings. Eddie Horniman, played by Theo James, unexpectedly inherits his father's estate, only to discover it's part of a cannabis empire. And Britain's criminal underworld wants a piece of the operation, forcing Eddie to play the gangsters at their own game. Now available only on Netflix. Wednesday, everybody. Welcome to the powers that be. I'm joined today by Eric Gardner to talk about all the ins and outs of Trump's legal problems, including a trial date set for March 4th in the uh, January 6th case, the Jack Smith indictment there. Um, Eric, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great. My friend Mike Linton, uh, who's actually a, an assistant U.S. attorney in Tucson, I woke up to this text he said, so we're getting the January 6th trial before we get Dune 2. He's a big movie buff. And I was I, w- I had just woken up and I was like, wait, when is the trial date? He says, the Trump trial has been set for 3-4-24. Dune 2 is 3-14-24. Uh, he was shocked that the Trump trial would come before the Dune sequel, which is long awaited. Eric, how did they settle on this date? And that's actually not that far away. Like, it's already September. Uh, does Does that seem like it's too soon or legally speaking is this like a normal sort of time span to set a trial well according to trump it's too soon i mean he wanted something like 2026 and you know he's threatening to appeal and he's saying that this is the uh, end of his due process rights and all that other than that though it's probably not that unusual to have a, a mm-hmm. case get to to trial uh, in around eight, 10 months time frame. It's pretty doable. I think that all the judges know that uh, they need to get these things started as soon as possible because the later it goes, uh, it just will become even more of a political situation and more of an unlikelihood that there'll be any sort of trial whatsoever. Uh, so they're trying to dance uh, the calendars with each other. I think the uh, Judge Chutkin today was talking about how she had been talking with the judge up in New York and they're trying to coordinate because the uh, Stormy Daniels related uh, cases for later that March. And there's no 
way that both trials can take place in March because this one is going to take at least six weeks. Why do you say that the longer this goes on or the longer it gets stalled, that it's less likely to be a trial? Well, uh, first of all, if Trump wins, it's very unlikely to, to go forward by Department of Justice policy. Mm-hmm. They're not supposed to prosecute sitting justices. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but I'm sure Trump would you know, appoint uh, a new head of the Justice Department who would withdraw these cases. So that would be one outcome. But even if Trump loses, I just think that you know the imperative is going to change after the election. I don't doubt that there could be trials that happen post-election. There's, it's very unlikely that all four of these cases are going to happen before the election. At least one, probably the, the Georgia one, is going to take place after the election. Hmm. But I think just the, the judges are fearing that, that they need to move on this now, or else uh, there could be some other things that, that interfere and get in the way of having a procedure. Not, not necessarily that there won't be trials, just you know, it's possible that, that there won't be. Is there a possibility on that note that, say there's a trial uh, for any of these cases, and then a guilty verdict, and then sentencing? Why couldn't the Trump legal team just keep appealing this stuff until there's a new president, hypothetically? <laughs> yes, and absolutely they will. But just because there's an appeal doesn't mean that the defendant remains out of prison. I mean, that's Mm. uh, under the discretion of the judge. Usually, at very least, the judge would want to restrain the defendant from from traveling out of the state Mm -hmm. after a conviction. Mm -hmm. There's just more implications ahead. And, you know, it it just becomes even more complicated. But, yeah, there will absolutely be an appeal if Trump is convicted. Uh, he's already talking about appealing the mere date of the trial, even though it's very unlikely he's going to be able to do that. I'm not looking forward to the spectacle of MAGA protesters outside of these courthouses uh, when these things are going down. So Judge Chutkin said that while she understood Trump has other trials going on and he's running for president, that, and by the way, it should be mentioned that the March 4th date that she set uh, for the federal election interference case is right before Super Tuesday next year when 15 states are are supposed to hold primaries or caucuses. So not good timing in the news cycle for Trump. But she said that, like, look, I know you're a former president. I know you're running for president again. I know that you have other trials going on, but I have to treat you like any other defendant. And she said, quote, Mr. Trump, like any defendant, will have to make the trial date work regardless of his schedule. There is a societal interest to a speedy trial. Have the Trump attorneys tried to argue against that? I assume they have, that these are special circumstances, he's running for president. What's their line of reasoning for having a different trial date? They they say that, you know, there are millions of documents in this case and that, mm-hmm. that you know, it's unfair that they don't have enough time to review everything. Uh, of course, there's the schedule complications. It's going to be an enormous process to, to just even seat a jury. Like, who doesn't have an opinion on this case? So there's just a range of things. I mean, this, isn't, this actually isn't as tricky as the classified documents case, because in, in that case, you know, there's all these procedures and like who can review the documents and, and who can handle them. And, you know, that 
very well could stretch on and on and on. Here mm-hmm. it seems more straightforward, but nevertheless, I mean, it's very clear that you know they want this trial to take place after the election, and so they they set a you know 2026 uh, target date, uh, you know, because they were hoping that you know maybe that would push the the judge to pick something in the middle between you know January 2024 and and, and 2026 and move it after the election, and that didn't happen. So you know they're crying foul here. I don't expect it will be for much because, like I said, I don't think that this is something that you can really appeal. I want to turn to the case in Georgia, the conspiracy case that Fannie Willis has brought. By the way, I I remember this even before Trump hired his new lawyer, Steve Sadow in Georgia. I think Willis prosecuted or is prosecuting, trying to, um, Young Thug, the rapper, under the same (laughs) RICO statutes in Georgia as Donald Trump. So Trump and Young Thug have something in common, which is interesting. And this lawyer that's representing Trump in Georgia also represented the rapper Gunna in his plea deal in Georgia. Very interesting uh, (laughs) confluence of celebrity right there. But speaking of the Georgia case, Mark Meadows, uh, Trump's former chief of staff, who's named as a co-conspirator in the Georgia case, Meadows lobbied in a hearing on Monday that his case should be transferred from uh, state jurisdiction in Georgia to federal court. Why is he trying to do that? And why would that be more favorable to him? Well, a couple of things. Number one, if you are a federal officer, you have the right to remove a case that's in state court to federal court for two things. One is that the action concerns your duties while in federal office. And two, you have a colorable defense. What's his colorable defense? Well, his colorable defense, according to him, is that he has immunity under the supremacy mm-hmm. clause. So if, he, mm-hmm. if he's successful in removing the case to federal court, uh, there's more than a likelihood chance that he will be able to convince the judge that he's immune from any claims because of the supremacy clause of the Constitution. But even if he doesn't convince the judge of his ultimate immunity, defendants still like the federal court because it draws in a a larger pool of jurors, not just uh, the city ones, but also the surrounding suburbs jurors that will probably go a little bit more in favor of Trump. So there's benefits that way too. It's interesting though, because if this does land in the federal court. It's already been assigned to a judge that was appointed by Barack Obama. So, you know, mm. there are arguments to be made. Well, maybe Fannie Willis should just keep it in federal court um, because she could relate all the cases to this one Obama appointed judge. And not only that, but, and, and I know people, some people disagree on this fact, but I think that the case in federal court would go a lot quicker than the, than the one in state court. So there are arguments actually for, for why maybe she shouldn't fight this, but she is fighting this. And yeah, it's, it's gonna be an interesting ruling. I don't expect the case to go on in federal courts um, because mm-hmm. of various reasons. But nevertheless, it's uh, it's interesting. And this is an issue, actually, that can be appealed. So we, we probably will see some appellate action right away over this topic. For context on the jury selection uh, in Fulton County in Georgia, politically, I mean, probably why Meadows doesn't want a jury there. I think Biden 
I mean, Fulton, Fulton County for clarity is, is, is a very populated County North of Atlanta. And it was like heavily black. And I think Biden won at like 75, 25 in 2020 and, and Warnock beat Herschel Walker there by the same margin. It's very, <laughs> be very unfavorable to Mark Meadows. If you look at a jury selection pool, last thing I want to ask Eric, before I let you go, I keep hearing that Trump could, if he becomes president, pardon himself in, all, in these federal cases, but he wouldn't be able to pardon himself um, if he's found guilty in the Georgia conspiracy case. Is that accurate? Uh, yes, because the Georgia case is a state case. It, it comes under state claims. And even if it proceeds in, in federal court, it's still under state claims. And, uh, and the president can only pardon his role under under federal federal causes of action, not mm. not the state one. But that being said, uh, there is still an argument to be made that if he is elected president, that the state officials won't be able to proceed in their prosecution of Trump until after he gets out of office. Mm. That's based on some policy. It hasn't really been interpreted yet, but I'm sure that would become a, a, a interesting little fight uh, if he were to be elected. I also, you know, I'm not sure he's going to need to pardon him himself. I know there's a lot of talk of, along those lines, but he can just appoint a head of the Justice Department who kind of withdraws uh, many of the cases mm -hmm. against him. Um, I don't think he'd, he'd need to go so far as to, to pardon himself. Those little distinctions are why we rely on you for legal expertise, Eric. Thank you so much for joining us, man. My pleasure. When we come back, Bill Cohan is here to talk about Amazon and ESPN. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting the new series, The Gentleman. Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings star in what the playlist calls an entertaining crime comedy filled with style, panache, and laughs. The Evening Standard raves, The Gentleman is peak Guy Ritchie, impossible not to love. Now available only on Netflix. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy talking to Wall Street veteran and best-selling author Bill Cohan. Hey there. Hey, Ben. Great to be with you, as always. So obviously, one of the biggest stories in media and on Wall Street over the last couple of months has been, what is Bob Iger going to do with ESPN? You know, he went on CNBC during Sun Valley, and he said, basically, ESPN needs a strategic partner. There were some rumors if he's actually sort of putting out a for sale sign, but he needs someone to come in and, and help make the economics of this thing work as he transitions from pay TV to streaming. There's been a lot of speculation that the partner could be Apple. We've talked about that on this show. Obviously, Tim Cook's been making a lot of moves into live sports on streaming. Now, according to the information, it sounds like that partner actually might be Amazon instead Bill, what was your reaction to seeing this, that we could see an ESPN-Amazon partnership come together? 
You know, I had, I had a couple of reactions, Ben. Um, first, okay, if they have to go the partner route, uh, Amazon makes sense as a as a partner, and you know how this partnership would be structured and what it would look like. You know, uh, you know, I don't know. I can imagine. So, on the one hand, okay, if you're doing this, there is probably as good a partner or among the best partners that you could choose. Uh, given their incredible number of eyeballs on Prime Video, that probably would help uh, ESPN. On, but on the other hand, it reeks of desperation to me, and that's kind of sad. I, uh, you know, it's really sort of come to this kind of thing where th- there, as I reported a few weeks ago, you know, they've got about 75 million subscribers. Uh, they expect that to go to 45 million before too long. You know, and then they've got this horrible conundrum of how to get into the streaming business, but also without cannibalizing their existing business or then, you know, getting people to actually pay for streaming when they obviously are paying for the uh, linear product. But, you know, it's sort of bundled with their cable bill. And so it doesn't quite feel like they're paying for it. How do you get people who've cut the cord to come back and pay uh, for streaming, especially if you're thinking about charging $35 a month, which is you know $420 a year, I just don't see where are people, why they think people have all this extra cash lying around that they want to spend on streaming. So can they replace the EBITDA that's lost from the linear TV uh, business with EBITDA gained from the streaming business? Uh, you know, and, that, and they're not the only ones who have to deal with that, Ben. I mean. Uh, all of uh, most of uh, these content Hollywood content providers uh, have to uh, deal with this situation. And uh, I don't think anybody's cracked this code yet, except for perhaps, uh, you know, Netflix, which didn't have a legacy business that they had to overcome. So, you know, I think it's really a tough business problem. And I'm not sure uh, a partnership with Amazon is going to be the answer. Yeah, Bill, I mean, I think you really hit the nail on the head. This is an economic conundrum for all sorts of linear properties as they make the move to streaming. But ESPN particularly, I mean, it was in almost every household. If you had a cable subscription, which used to be most households in the U.S., you probably had an ESPN subscription. And they were collecting something like 8 to $10 a month on carriage fees. I think the number is probably still in that range. So that's over $100 a year in annual recurring revenue from you know, 100 million households at one point, and that's going away. And how do you price this thing if you're going to even attempt to replicate those economics? The information reported that ESPN streaming product could be as high as $35 a month. I think you're right. That's pretty steep, but they must be figuring that the total number of people who are going to ultimately sign up for this thing is actually going to be a lot smaller than the customer base they have on linear right now. And so they do have to price it a lot higher to compensate for that. But that is that is really tricky. Yeah, and probably $35 is the right number that they have to charge to actually make money because, you know, as Warren Buffett said at his annual meeting, you know, that the whole industry hasn't figured out how to price streaming in a way to make money. And and maybe, you know, prices across uh, the industry are obviously heading up. But what that means is that, you know, you're going to ask uh, everybody to pay $35 a month or $30 a month or $25 a month. Where do they think people are getting all this money to pay uh, for all these different streaming services, which, of course, are incremental to 
their phone, in- incremental to their internet, probably in- incremental to their ongoing cable TV uh, bill. So I think it's foolhardy, honestly, to think uh, that uh, people are going to just uh, continue to pay for all of this a la carte. I think people are just going to say, you know what, Ugh, you know, do, do I really need ESPN? I mean, obviously, there are going to be people who feel that they really need it, but do they also going to need Disney Plus, or do they also going to need HBO Max? In other words, I think people are going to prioritize what they feel strongly about, and you know, there'll be some winners or some things that they keep, but no one's going to get the whole uh, panoply of all these streaming services. And you know, that's why I keep thinking if Disney were really smart, what they would do here is essentially offload ESPN to Comcast as part of a Hulu swap and basically uh, get rid of their majority ownership because as storied an idea and a product as ESPN has, and and I think Jimmy, you know, Jimmy Pitaro is doing as good a job as anybody could be uh, hoping to do right now running that. I think the, the macroeconomic facts around ESPN are just too daunting and they should get rid of it if they can, if Comcast will take it off their hands and then, you know, focus on there are other problems that Iger and Disney have now, which they don't seem to have much solution for either. Uh, this just seems to be like a headache they don't need to have right now when they should be focusing more on their core businesses. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's also a question if whether NBC Universal, Comcast, wants to take on this headache too. I mean, there, there's really only so many buyers in town. You know, we were talking about Apple before as a good fit for ESPN, especially in sort of a in terms of brand alignment. Now we're talking about Amazon potentially as a partner. It's interesting to me that those two sort of leading candidates, setting aside Comcast for the second, are both multi-trillion dollar mega cap technology companies. It does feel more and more like you are going to need a sort of white knight company, probably a tech company, to come in to basically take over these struggling linear assets and hold them almost in conservatorship until they can make the economics work on streaming, because there is going to be this really painful sort of intermediate transitional period in between. I mean, look, we've said the same things about the newspaper business that, you know, they needed to be put into conservatorship or, you know, white knights need to come along and rescue them, which is sort of what happened to a lot of newspapers. And those that didn't get rescued have disappeared, essentially, or got bought by the Alden capitals of the world and, and sort of stripped bare. Uh, you know, I think that probably something similar to that needs to happen uh, here. And if you're a first mover, I think you'll benefit. But that's why I think Disney should really take this opportunity and be a first mover and, you know, offload ESPN so that it can focus on other things. Uh, you don't want to be the last mover trying to offload linear assets. Uh you know, I think, frankly, Disney's in a good uh, position to do something with ESPN, which, of course, was talked about. They talked about spinning it off with a bunch of debt, which, you know, again, seems like a, it would be a pretty smart corporate finance uh, move. You know, you don't want to be like, you know, Paramount Global. I mean, how do you how do you move that franchise? How do you find someone who's interested in all of a movie studio a linear TV network on the decline and a bunch of cable TV channels on the decline and a streaming business losing money. I just don't see who's in the market for that. I don't know what white knight 
can come along for that. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, at the end of the day, they are going to be a, a last mover. And so the, the spoils here, such as they are, are going to go to the, the the companies that make this first move. And um, it could, all this just could be an elaborate head fake by Iger to create some competition, say, with Comcast for ESPN by, you know, suggesting that Amazon is interested in becoming an investor slash strategic partner. He's got to do something to make Comcast feel like they uh, might lose it if, in fact, they want it at all, and therefore uh, will pay up for it more than just swapping their uh, one-third stake in Hulu. Yeah, well, I I sort of hope it happens now, if for no other reason than this theory has sort of been your baby for a while. Yeah, I'll probably get, you know, hoisted on my own petard here. <laughs> but, I, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ride down. I'm going to go down with the ship on this one. I, I think it's a very good idea, even though I haven't heard from Brian or Bob. So I don't know whether that means they think it's a good idea or not. And they're actually doing it or they're just they've totally dismissed it. Well, if we were to end on, on one note of optimism, I mean, I think it seems sort of self-evident that live sports is not going away. People love sports. People are going to watch sports, whether it's on cable or on streaming. It's really just this pricing question. And maybe at the end of the day, it just comes back to the fact that consumers are going to have to reorient their expectations back to sort of what they were 10, 15 years ago. I mean, we were promised that that entertainment was going to be cheap, that entertainment might even be free when, you know, millions of college students were borrowing and, and sharing passwords on Netflix. But the reality is that the cable bundle was expensive. It was over $100 a month for a reason. And maybe we're just eventually headed back in that direction, that if you want to watch live sports and you also want HBO and you want Disney and you want CNN and you want all this stuff, it's actually going to cost you a fair amount of money. The underlying cost of producing this stuff isn't getting cheaper. It's actually, in many cases, getting more expensive. Maybe that's just the world we live in. Well, you know, and of course, live sports are increasingly more expensive. So that's not going to make the people who end up winning the deals for the live sports uh, making their uh, streaming offering uh, any cheaper. It's going to make it more expensive. Uh, as we know, Ben, everything is more expensive, right? So, I mean, I just don't, I think at some point people are going to have to make choices about uh, what they spend their limited resources on. And when, you know, you are used to getting something sort of included in your $100 a month cable bill, and now it's all being disintegrated, separated, parsed out in individual uh, bundles, which add up to a lot more than $100 a month, you're going to say, I think, I mean, unless I'm misreading uh, the American um, economy and uh, who who can afford what these days, uh, I think people are going to have to make choices and there's definitely that's going to definitely lead to winners and losers and probably will lead to, uh, you know, consolidation uh, in the industry and, you know, more M&A deals, which means the investment bankers will uh, find a way to make money off of all this sooner or later. Yeah, I think that's right, Bill. The great rebundling is coming. It's going to be expensive. So stop whining and pay up. <laughs> David Zaslov's <laughs> bonus is not going to pay itself. That's Bill, right. And Bob Iger isn't either because he's not going anywhere, apparently. Bill, thanks as always for coming by. Thank you, Ben. Great to talk to you. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. 
If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.